My name is Frank Boris. This is Bridgeport Stories. It's a podcast about folks who are in and around Bridgeport who've made a difference or who have something interesting to say or even tell some really cool stories. And today I have one of those folks. His name is Wayne Winston. Hi, Wayne. So, Wayne, um, you know, we're going to get right into it, okay? okay. No sense in, uh, you know, small talk. for we, we could do the small talk off mic. Sounds like a plan. All right? <laughs> so, Wayne, tell me about your folks. How did they end up in Bridgeport? Or your folks' folks? I don't know how long, I don't know how far back you go, so tell me. I was born in Bridgeport. Not you. I want to know how far back they went. They went, my family came to Bridgeport. My dad was from West Virginia. My mom was from Buffalo. Um, they wound up meeting in Buffalo, and then they came to Bridgeport because this is where the jobs were. Right. So my dad worked in Stanford at actually a, a car dealer. Uh, it was like Circle Oldsmobile, I believe it was called, in Stanford. And uh, my mom was a housewife here. Uh, she had a couple of jobs. And, um, you know, Bridgeport was obviously that place to be. So they lived in Bridgeport, but he worked in Stanford. Yes. Okay. Yes. How did they come to choose Bridgeport? Well, the it, it was pretty well known that Bridgeport was that place that was, if you wanted a job, there was a saying that right. you could quit a job at 9 o'clock and right. have another one at 12. That's true. You know, so Jenkins Valves uh, was down there. You know, you had all of these um, Tom Watt. Uh, you had Bullers out here. Um, you had uh, Bassett Casters, you know, all of these things that are basically just looks like burnt out factories from left from that time. And Bridgeport always had a lot of pride and it always had a lot of pride about what they did. And it's the unfortunate thing is that, you know, as you move out of a age of, of machinery, you know, that was uh, basically fueled by the war. You know, you've got to transition into something else. And that's kind of like where we got into that area of like, where does Bridgeport go for, for now? But your folks came here to work, and that must have been the 50s? Uh, yes, that was the 50s into the 60s. Okay. Into the 60s. So you were born in the early 60s? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. And so uh, what's your earliest memory? Tell me about your earliest memories. Oh, man. Because I'm older than you. I remember JFK being shot awful. I remember okay. the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Those are like memorable things. How gotcha. about for you? What was memorable as a young man. child? You know, as strange as it is, I was little, and I remember when Kennedy was shot. I don't know why. It was just like, a, just like this feeling that you could just feel it in the air that something was wrong. I remember my mom was crying, you know, my dad was upset, you know, it was like, uh, you know, how could this happen, you know, and again, as a young person, you don't know what that is, but it lasted for a while, and uh, the funny thing is that, uh, boy, the pictures on the wall, which we don't do much today, but the pictures on the wall was John F. Kennedy, it was Martin Luther King, and it was Jesus. Right. Those, those, are the, are the those are the three. <laughs> and I just kind of, as I'm having this discussion, like, wow, I haven't thought about that in so long, man. I can't tell you how many people have told me that. Yeah, that's yeah. very true. And that's we just true. don't do that. You don't, you know, well, you know, Obama, you know, yeah. but um, I think he's probably been the closest one since uh -huh. then. I don't remember Clinton pictures. Right. You know, um, no, I don't. No, that was it. That was know? the threesome. <laughs> and, and so... Um, you were raised going to grammar school here in Bridgeport. Where did yes. you go to school? Uh, I went to grammar school at Elias Howe. Okay, so right down the street on Clinton yes. Avenue. Yes, 
And then I wound up at Vasic after that. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of people say, hey, you should play basketball and stuff when you graduate. It's like, ah, man, I don't know. Um, and I was lucky enough that I went to the mall one day. A friend of mine, he was going to the mall to get a job for the summer. You know, I did really well in school. I skipped a grade and all that kind of stuff. So I was very blessed with that. In fact, um, I worked for uh, UI during, you know, my last year of school. That's something called a space program, you know. So you got credit for, for school. You go half there and half to work. So it got me acclimated with that, but I was, was kind of like I didn't really want to do that whole machine thing. So a friend of mine went up to um, for a job interview, and we were literally playing basketball. And uh, he's like, I got to go do a job interview. My family's making me go. I'm like, cool. He's like, come on with me, man. So um, I go with him to the job interview. They got this big test that they take, you know, and they filled it for out. For UI? Uh, um, let, me, let me clarify. Oh, okay. The UI was for the summer, so right. we're done. That's done. Right? That's done. My mom's like, okay, you got to find a job. You got to do something. I've done the UI summer job too. Oh, okay. So mine was on Pembroke, on East Main Street. Oh, okay. Because that's where the big UI factory okay. was, or should I okay. say, plant. I was at uh, Steel Point, actually. Were, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, the one. Location. Yeah, it went down. Okay. Yes. Yeah, they were like rebuilding that thing for years, at man. East Main Street. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but for some reason, the entranceway they had when I was here, it was off of. Uh, Broad Street, Broad, and then it's that one. It's, it's yeah, it was Broad Street because you go in that side, and for whatever reason, that's okay. okay. Keep talking. So what happens is that um, I'm done with the summer job. Uh, my grades are great. I'm like, figure where I'm gonna go. You know, what school, all the stuff. And when we wound up going to accompany my friend for a job, um, the guy manager says, hey, why don't you fill out an application, too? I'm like, ah, no, I don't really want to do that. He's like, look, you're sitting right here. You're waiting for the guy. So when I fill out the application, he wants me to fill out another uh, application. And I'm going, all right, well, what's this all about? And um, he says, uh, you know, based upon what, how you answer these questions, I think we can get you into a management training program. And I'm sitting there like, who's we, though? Oh, I'm sorry. The, the manager of the store, this happens to be Kenny Shoes. Oh, Kenny Shoes. Okay. Which is up in the in mall. In the mall, okay. Yes. So I was going like, you know, but my friend wants the job, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but, you know, just fill it out and see what happens. So the next day, you know, we're hanging out, and I get back to the house. My mom says, hey, Wayne, you know, Kenny Shoes called you. I was like, oh, okay. And uh, I'm like, all right. So I call, and uh, the guy says, hey, listen, we'd like you to come to work for us. And actually, we'd like just want to put you in the management training program. Now, this is your senior year in high school? This is right after. So you're done with high school. I'm done with high school. You're trying to figure out what you're going to do. Yes. Kenny Shoes calls. They want to make you a manager. Yes. And you say, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm on. I'm going up there. When I get the call, the first person I call is my friend. Okay. Hey, man, I got a call from Kenny's, man. This is great. You know, they, they want to hire me. It's like, yeah. I was like, yeah. They want to be in the management training program. Like, well, we're both going to be in that. He gets real quiet. I bet. I said, oh, man. It's <laughs> and the dad didn't do it on me. Right. He said, they didn't call me back. I was like, oh, man. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> so how long were you at Kenny's before Oh, you man. Um, I was at Kenny's for the one in Trumbull for about two years. The third year, they started putting me into a training program to train other managers because I was very good at it. You know, add-on sales and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's where these companies make their money at. Mm -hmm. You know, so shoes are one thing, but those handbags and the soap and all the saddle soap, all the stuff were part of it. 
And I wound up being a pretty good salesman, which is pretty much the opposite of what I was earlier because um, I didn't do that much sales stuff. But what I did do, I was always the music guy. So during my high school time, I was that guy for all the music. So I was the DJ for all of the stuff. I got invited to stuff just because I was the DJ. <laughs> so you were a DJ as well? Yes. And now we're talking early 80s. Yes. yes. So during uh, MTV generation, you yes. were into music? Yes. Yes. And what did that lead to? Well, I was doing a DJ gig, and I was still doing the management gig. So I'd get out of there, do a party, and I'd still be at work on Sunday morning, you know? So um, it was a lot of fun. I wound up going into New York, and I was talking about the mid-'80s, you know, DJing at clubs and so on. And a lot of these people uh, that are in the music business now, you know, were getting started. Craig Mack and these guys, you know, they were pretty much uh, on top then. And um, the DJs then really ran the show. Right. Because someone could actually bring a record in, and you could play it, and then, boom, it'd be banging right there. You know, DJs played a whole nother role, and so did radio stations. How long did you do the DJ thing? Up until about 10 years ago. Really? So you did DJ for a long period. Yeah. Uh, what would you say your career track was? So you first started in sales, retail sales, and then you went to DJ and entertainment. Is that how, did you stay in entertainment throughout your career? Here and there. I wound up being very good as a sales trainer, management trainer. So I went from Kenny's, who actually moved me to Boston. We opened their first storefront store because they were in malls. So they moved me to Boston. I became a sales trainer up there. And um, I was up there. My stint with them was about 12 years. you know. And then the transition came where people moved away from like family shoes, from shopping together, to the, they created Foot Locker. And Lady Foot Locker came out of that because the Kenny stores were phasing out because the shopper was changing. Right, and it wasn't mom and dad with the teenage son. Now it was a teenage yes. son on his own yes. going to buy the sneaker or the yes. whatever. And okay, they that's interesting. Want, yeah, Because we want, think about that today, right? We're moving from you know brick and mortar today to online. Absolutely. And, that, and that's the whole transition because Champ Sports did the same thing. You know, so Kenny opened Foot Locker. They had Lady Foot Locker. And uh, yet Champ, I believe, became another subdivision of theirs as well. And they wanted me to wear the referee outfit. I remember that. Hey, Wayne, you get transferred. Oh, referee outfit, man. You're a suit and tie guy, right? <laughs> yeah, man. You know, I'm training. Like, I'm doing these trainings. They're like 20 guys, you know, how to increase your add-on sales. You know, we had bonuses and trips, man. I want a trip to um, St. Martin, all expenses paid. You know, the guy that trained me, uh, Andy Cochran, um, he's like, Wayne, there's no way you want that trip. Come on, you're dreaming, you know. I'm in Boston now, you know. I have my own store outside of Boston. When I went up, I opened it with someone else. They gave me my own in Natick. It was kind of like a small town, wasn't a whole lot going on. I looked at this place, this is a gold mine right here, man. We started killing those numbers, man, just picking up additional business. It's all about customer service, trying to get... Well, you're good, you're stuff. affable, you're That's just a nice of. guy. Um, I can see you as a great salesman, too, uh, because of that, right? That's part of it. Customer yes. service, treating Absolutely. people with respect, Absolutely. all that. Um, what did, what did your professional career become here in Bridgeport? In Bridgeport, when I came back, my mom got it was ill. So I wound up coming back to Bridgeport. The transition had happened, you know, within the Kinney's and so on. Again, I didn't want to do that. I still maintained 
the DJ thing. And then some people that were in entertainment, you know, like uh, Spinnerella from Salt and Pepper, you know, um, there was a club called Silver Shadow in uh, The Shadow in New York. You know, so I did a, a stint there. Um, I started working with Dynamark. Dynamark is an alarm company. Okay. They were like the first major national wireless alarm company. Those things were expensive, but I was a sales trainer for them as well. You know, so I'd be the guy you talk to on the phone. They'd figure out how to make a deal on what it would cost to get it done. And then we make a comfortable arrangement that they could aff- afford it because our alarms are two grand or you can get the wire joint for like 500 bucks. So we had to have someone there that could answer those questions and set the finance stuff up and okay. we send them over to the bank and that's it. So I wound up doing that with Dynamark for quite some time. Um, about that time I'm with Dynamark, I'm seeing all of these things start to happen um, like within, within my own family. My older brother worked for General Electric, GE. Yep. And um, he was a computer, he's the head computer analyst. So he knew DOS, all that kind of stuff. And I remember coming home one day and he was, had visited the house because he was married with his family living in Naugatuck. And he was very upset. And, um, you know, my mom said, you just, just, you know, give us a few minutes. And I'm listening at the stairs, and he's like, they promised they're going to give it to me again, Mom. You know, um, it's just not right. You know, they continually have me training people, and they're not giving me the right job. You know, um, I'm just watching these guys that know nothing. You know, and he was the head guy for computer operations. You know, his shift was from 11 to 7 in the morning. And um, I remember the next day, I'm talking to my mom. I was like, this is really terrible. And something happened locally. And I was walking down the street on Park Avenue. Because by then, we had moved, uh, mom had moved to uh, Marina Village. So um, I'm walking up the street to the store, and this lady pulls over. She says, hey, 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 you know, I've seen you before. She says, you know, you run a community and so on. She says, you should join the NACP. And I was like, why don't join, you know, because there's a lot of stuff that's going on. And it was all just by luck within days that happened. Sometimes God is moving things. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be Carolyn Nam. Mm-hmm. Who went on? Who was actually the president, the president. of the NACP right. at that time for like four years? Right. And so that's how I got involved with the whole NACP movement, and then that took on a life of its own. So through that training that they had then, because it's different now, but the training that they had then, I mean, they taught you labor industrial, how to sit and arbitrate for somebody's job. So uh, we did that. Who uh, was providing the training? Uh, the NACP did. Oh, okay. To you. Yes, yes. Uh, so that you could um, arbitrate or uh, mediate? Yes. I see. And would you be like a volunteer or a paid mediator? Oh, um, NACP is totally, totally volunteer. volunteer. That I understand. Even the presidents right. aren't paid, unless you're lucky in one of those districts to do. Right. So um, I just kind of, um, I was very much in education, so I cared about that. Also cared about the um, arbitration aspect of it, so um, I chaired the labor industrial committee. And because of like my communications expertise, I was a communications person as well. So it doesn't. This is take, Bridgeport. This is Bridgeport and ACP. Um, the president at the time um, was out of Hartford, and he was real big on that training training stuff. Passed away recently. Oh my God, I can't think of his name. It went out of my head. You talking about the Connecticut president? Uh, the the Connecticut state of the NACP. Uh, Scott right. came in after him. Okay. Um, yeah, he, he, was, he was an outstanding guy. And what they did was a lot more training then. So when you learn how to train, there would be people, you'd have like a two-day conference, 
and there would be t- p- people that would teach you what the dynamic was of when you go into a meeting, when you go into a, a place with a business, you know, the things that you want to ask, the things that you wanted to advocate be- for. Because the NAACP would find themselves or, or put themselves in situations where they had to help someone in a in a discriminatory issue or yes that's let me clarify what the NACP is NACP is a civil rights organization it's not a black organization it's civil rights it's just that the laws that were written were specifically for black people so that's why it wound up being black people you know so uh thank the lord i mean it affects everybody across the board women got added to it you know obviously it helps the latinos but it was strictly african americans that couldn't vote you know, they didn't leave. The, they didn't have the Latinos in there, so that's why that that battle of equality, rising tide raises all boats. So, are you saying your experience with the NAACP made you conscious of the needs of the community and uh, the need to advocate for people? It gave me a tool to help. And one of the things that I did is I reached out to my brother. You know, and my brother was, is uh, ten years older than I am, so um, I had a discussion with him this issue happened in GE. Actually, he drove down. He lived, worked in GE in Bridgeport. And we had the discussion, but it was the kind of thing he was kind of like, Wayne, I just don't want to get into it. You know, it's like, man, I want to help him, you know, but I really can't because without him saying, I want to help you, I would incorporate other people that were more experienced. It just wound up being a very much a sore point for him. So for me, I found that I really liked helping people. And there's uh, examples of uh, People Savings Bank, a uh, young lady said that, uh, you know, she'd given them notice that she's taking a vacation. And for whatever reason, her supervisor says, no, you didn't give us a uh, notification, and she gets fired. So now we have to go over, meet with People's. Uh, she comes and makes a complaint. We meet with People Savings Bank. We find out that she did. They still didn't want to, you know, have her go back to work. It becomes okay based upon the contract. I read all that stuff, you know, the stuff that you're Wow, doing. so you actually almost have to serve as her representative or almost yeah. her legal representative. Yeah, there's a fine line. Is that right what there. the NAACP is, a legal representation? Not really. It's, we're an advocacy organization. So we know what those tools are. You know, we have litigation that can happen. But most times people will come to what makes sense uh, because they, if someone's a good employee, they usually try to hang on to that good employee right. if there's an issue. Right. If you have someone who's just a jerk, yeah. then that could turn into a big thing. I mean, we boycotted McDonald's for a while, you know, as an organization here in Bridgeport, and that was huge. But you have to get um, something like a, an organization like that, you have to get permission from the national office to boycott a McDonald's. Okay. So at the end of the day, we had a, a woman here, uh, Deborah Sunshine, which who most people may remember. She had four McDonald's. In fact, she's the one that built the one over on the West End here. That was the first McDonald's that was built in Bridgeport beyond that one up in Main Street. She built the one on North Avenue. She built the one, the third one was uh, in Fairfield at the Rotary there. And um, she wound up buying from the owner on Main Street. So she went through a bit of uh, an issue there. I mean, they were dropping in on her. Someone here wanted to have those McDonald's. And they put her through a lot of hell. They were high up in the company. So they would come and have inspections 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. You know, nobody does that stuff, you know. And it was a really big deal. So with those types of things happening, NACP National understood it was something unusual. She's a minority business owner 
hire people from the community. You could count them for everything. So we wanted to avoid Connie McDonald. Churches was involved and so on and so forth. By the time it was all done, you know, um, it didn't go the way I would have liked to, which is she got a settlement. Um, they had minority um, business what loans. What year are we talking about? We're talking uh, 98. So by the mid-90s, you're deep into NAACP activities, advocating mm -hmm. on behalf of people, helping folks, um, but you have your job as well. Yes. Right? And at that point, what's, what are you working? Where are you working at that point in late 90s? I did. Um, I started working with crazy... Eddie, I got into the electronics. Crazy I was in management with those guys. Just so everybody knows, yes. he's not really putting someone down or, or talking about <laughs> mental health. Crazy Eddie's was the name of a store. Yes. And, um, like Best Buy. Yes, it was. <clears throat> and the commercials are legendary. They're on television. Yeah. If you have to just look up Crazy Eddie, you see a guy named Eddie Antar. He was the founder. But Jerry Carroll is a guy to go, Crazy Eddie. You right. Know? Jerry. <laughs> Your yeah. prices are insane. You know, insane. He did, he did Christmas in yes. July sale, you know. Right. And Eddie's thing was that they could bring stuff in, and you'd buy it below the retail cost. They knew what they paid for it, and they would let people bargain in the middle, which doesn't happen right now. So, um Eddie's was great because it's commission, you know, and I love commission because you can basically put in that work and make that money back. So I really liked that work for uh, Eddie's for about uh, three or four years. All the time I was maintaining, you know, the stuff with my NACP stuff and also the stuff that went with the DJ stuff and so on. So I pretty had, much had a full plate. So you developed maybe a reputation in town. People knew who you were because you were helping on behalf of the NAACP. Yes. You were doing uh, high profile, higher profile work with, with um, you know, being a DJ. Yes. And you were working at Crazy Eddie, so you knew technology. So people kind of knew, gravitate to you for certain things, I'm Absolutely. guessing. Absolutely. And well into 05. Because I don't know where I know you from. <laughs> I know. We're trying to figure that out, man. Don't it's know where I know you around, from. Man. I just know that for me, it's like you're one of those people that sort of was always there, but I know it started somewhere. Sure. I, as I was a, a journalist early on and then involved in the community, and then we'd run into each other here and there. And, and so when we started this podcast, it became evident that you were one person in this community that people probably would like to know more about. And so we do know that uh, you started and your heart was in the right place. You, you know, did advocacy and stuff like that. Um, how did you transition into the uh, next century, the 21st century? Well, that was, uh, by then I had went on to Macy's because Crazy Eddie closed, The Wiz, there was quite a few things that happened around it. The economy crashed, you know, so now you're in that whole transitional thing of like, what else you do? So um, I worked at Macy's for a while. Um, I was setting up home theaters. We're talking post 9-11. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, that was traumatic for everybody, obviously. And then everybody's going, boy, what do I do? Because the world was not the same. You know, the economy was not the same. And um, being in an environment where people were feeling good about America, but at the same time, we still had the issues of race going on. Yep. It was a very interesting dynamic, you know. And once we got far, far enough away from we're all Americans, you know, with the NACP, we were back all to the same things that had happened because it started turning against the Middle Easterners where all the Middle Easterners were demonized. And there's a whole lot of things going on. We're trying to balance that stuff out because we had a lot of Middle Easterners in our communities. Um, 
from my standpoint, you know, the DJing thing con continued. Um, I started working more into the fashion industry um, at that point because my hobby was always photography anyway. So um, a friend of mine puts on like a couple of the biggest shows in New York for fashion week. So one year she didn't have a photographer. And so she gave me a call and said, Wayne, I really need you to come up. Um, I'm doing um, the Circle of Sisters, which is the largest African-American um, uh, event for women. It's like hair shows, expo. We have it at the Javits Center. So um, Javits Center, if you haven't been there, if you put like eight stopping shops together in the biggest ones you've ever seen, that's right. still not big as a Javits Center. And so the, the expo is usually uh, popular. So you have all these major performers and stuff. But the fashion shows were put on by a woman named Deb Williams. Deb is a Connecticut resident. She's so good at her job. Even though with all these people in New York, they brought her in to handle that thing every single year. So um, I went. You know, um, I was able to shoot some of the models, some of the people I knew from the industry in the past. Hey, great to see you. You know, let's reconnect again. You know, they're putting magazines together. They're doing promotional stuff. So I'm doing this stuff on the side. Um, I get to know these amazing uh, women that are in the modeling business. And, um, you know, you find that most of these women who are in the business, you, you don't have to be 18 anymore, 16, weigh 90 pounds. There's a transition that started happening in the like 05, 06, in the 2010, where you can actually have some weight and have some curves, yeah. which most of our people are. Right. Um, the idea that you had to be 16 or in 90 pounds. Twiggy. Yeah, basically. Right. And right. I know a lot of people know what Twiggy is, but. Um, we'll have to tell people what Twiggy <laughs> is. All these references, right, that only right. people our age understand. Okay, go ahead. Um, 90 pounds. And the, the game then was you had to come in. And you had to look a certain way. Um, you could go to Ford and just bring your walk in and see him, right. you know, or, you could, or it was really a who you knew type thing at that point. Ford agency. Ford agency, yes. Um, one of the biggest, IMG now is uh, one of the biggest ones, but Ford right. is still around. They're so exclusively now booked with superstars, that's really what they do. Right. So they went into the superstar business because social media changed the dynamic where you can now you're coming with a following. You know, you don't have to build it anymore for you. Because that's what it allowed you to do. Same thing happened with the music business about that time to transition. You know, before you had to go perform places, which is great. And I recommend that now to up and coming artists because a lot are getting out there and they can't perform for anything. Check out my CD, you know. Okay, your song is great. Can you perform? You know, what is your presence? So like? is that the business you're currently in? Um, I do a little bit of that. There's some people that are in the business. We have, you know, dialogue about, you know, because A&R is dead, you know, where you'd go in and, 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 and mold a person to, to, to fit better and have a certain image. They've killed that off, too. They, meaning record industry, they're able to just bring anybody in and just say, you have enough following. We'll put a song out. X amount of people are going to hear it, whether you're the best or not. So it gives you a chance to cherry pick those people. So uh, unless you're, again, related to somebody and they could push something out for you, we're just in that place where social media has taken over that game and the modeling game, which then goes back to the young ladies that I work with that were primarily out of New York, extremely talented, beautiful, fun. But, you know, they're regular jobs. You know, they're working in doctor's offices, the supermarkets. Some of them are uh, attorneys and so on. And uh, a couple times a year, they get to get in front of a camera and there'll be amazing designers looking for women like them. 
and the shows are phenomenal. So it gave me a chance to shoot a lot of them, develop relationships with them, but they were predominantly out of New York. So being out of New York, when something would happen, most of the stuff happens there anyway. They can get on a train or drive, whatever, because they're right there. But I always wanted representation from Connecticut, and Deborah was always saying, Wayne, you got to try to see what we can do, because I wound up doing that every single year. So on my Facebook, for example, I have a lot of my advocacy stuff there. If uh, anyone, folks that know me, um, they see the pictures there for different events. They see the pictures of the models that I shoot. Uh, they capture the moments. A lot of times I'll go to events and I'll capture moments for other people because sometimes for them, they may not. So have you're still doing pictures. the photography. I still do. I still uh, do. But the DJ stuff has, that's the past. Yes. Um, so you're really a multimedia person. Yes. Really. It's, it's been all about photography. It's been uh, DJ work, entertainment, yes. um, radio. You're on the radio, right? So you're kind of all over that. Yes. Yeah. And that's partially who you are. But I also see you Juneteenth. I see you being interviewed uh, for different issues that come up around town. How have you become the spokesperson for the bridge border? How did that happen? Because I see you on TV a lot. It says, Wayne's over there too? And Wayne's over there? And Wayne's talking about this? And he's talking about that? How does that happen? I, honestly, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I know. Once a reporter mm -hmm. has your name mm -hmm. and you do a good job mm -hmm. of communicating an issue, mm -hmm. reporter wants the easy way out too. They don't want to have to find somebody that might not be able to articulate the points that you're able to do. Mm -hmm. So they just say, hey, Wayne, we got this issue. What do you think? And they know you're going to give a, a smart... Um, response that is relative to how you feel or your community feels. So they're going to call you. And it happens to me too. There's certain reporters that call me yes. over and over again because yes. they know that I'm good for a good a good quote. <laughs> and so you're kind of the same way, right? Well, uh, you know, thank you. You put that in a nutshell for me because they're like, I don't know. Like, How the heck is and that's really what it, what it was. I mean, um, People, a lot of people think, and I'm going to tell you something, a lot of people, oh, you love being out there. It's like representation of our community is so important. Uh, you probably see something, we look so ignorant so many times. Like, if we let them choose the people. Oh, my God. You know, so I just got lucky a few times that, you know, News 12 or these other organizations that I belong to, because of my background in communications, I can write stuff, too. So I've, I wound up writing stuff. I'm, I'm, I have, I'm um, part of an organization called Foundation of Hope, which is in Stanford. Uh, we help to feed children. Um, we advocate for children's organizations and so on. And we connect with folks. So um, we did something for Save the Children and raise money for them. So with them, I'm writing press releases and stuff. And like, hey, read the press release. They're calling. And so that now they're calling me from Foundation of Hope. It sounds like when there's, when there's something that needs to be done, give it to a busy guy. Yeah. <laughs> because they know that you're going to come through. Yeah. So that's basically what you are. You're a person in the community who's willing to do the hard work. Yes. And, and that's why they come to you is because they know they... And so you are involved with a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it's a list. Yes. Uh, Juneteenth being one of the newest ones, right? Yes. Which just got a lot of uh, publicity. Juneteenth is a wonderful organization. Let's tell you something about Juneteenth. Juneteenth was founded in 1991, um, this chapter by Cynthia Griffin. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I ran into her because this year, obviously Juneteenth, because I of saw the her on News Twelve. She was on News Twelve with you. She found it, and um, I reminded her because she, she reminded me about ten years ago. I just reminded her yesterday. I said, "She said, you know, you did your first interview. You gave me my first interview. I used to have a radio station myself and a Haitian gentleman, Serge Petitome." had a radio station in the City Trust building on the top, just before it got sold and turning all these apartments. And um, it was AM, the guys from uh, W uh, Weeby 108 came over, they were really cool. And then the building got sold about six months in. We had just closed a deal with American Airlines, because you gotta spend X amount of time establishing yourself. Right. And they freaking sold the building. Oh, when boy. they sold the building, everybody had to get out. We went back one day to get our stuff, Glass was broken. They had stole all the stuff. The people in the building didn't want to know anything because it's gone. They no longer own it. And so basically that took care of the radio station aspect of it. But um, that's how long Juneteenth has been doing its thing here. It's gone through transitions with different presidents. Cynthia being the founder, it is so important that we all um, understand that um, that holiday is for all of us. It's an American holiday. And people should feel good that that's the day that America, you know, try to correct an issue and that's what we celebrate because General Granger says listen you guys are free get off of those get out that trans uh, get off that um, plantation mm -hmm. you know it's a year and a half later you already been free right so you can imagine how happy that you had to be and um, a lot of time our American history is hidden you know and that's part of why we have these issues with Christopher Columbus now because that real truth was hidden so as things come to light, this generation is saying, maybe we shouldn't have that statue. Of so where are you with all this? Now we fast forward 2020, you got COVID, you got Minneapolis, you got, or should I say, the death of George Floyd, which mm. is really the issue here, not Minneapolis. Um, where, where, where do you, how, how are you feeling about all this and where do you think we should be going and um, it's all so complicated and so simple yeah um, that's that's about right um, look I, I, I love my community I love Bridgeport um, I live in trouble now the things are the same but different meaning my roots are in this city and a lot of people from Trumbull's roots from the city. You know, it became a suburb. People made money back in the day, sold their house in Bridgeport, made a whole lot of money there. Um, but I remember, and we still have the issues, which is we crossed that line, Old Town Road, and it'd be like going into, you know, uh, the Mason-Dixon line, I used to call it. I remember. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I remember at the NACP, we had to actually stand on Old Town Road because the mall made the decision that they didn't want the buses to come up from Central anymore because the people that lived in Trumbull, the, the shoppers were uncomfortable walking through black students. And that was a whole big thing. So I know those things to be so a couple of police chiefs back. Um, so feeling those things and knowing them here and seeing Philandro Castile and all these people just repeatedly being killed, but America didn't hear them until George Floyd. You know, um, man plans and God laughs. This horrible COVID thing was going on, you know, Frank, and it was taking lives and disproportionately black and brown lives. You know, it's a horrible time. People are home. They're locked down. Oh, my God. 
when you get the first thing with Ahmad Arbery that happens and you realize he establishes actually institutionalized racism for the whole planet to see. Okay. One, he's told the police department, tell his mom, listen, your son's dead because he broke into somebody's house and the homeowner killed him. Now he's dead and buried in the ground. His mom doesn't know. Oh my God, this is terrible. The people that do it. Meanwhile, have filmed it. The two father and son and the third person who's actually filmed it. That video is being circulated amongst the police department. That's institutionalized racism. Of course, they made no chips. They made no bones about it. They weren't going to arrest them or anything. In fact, the person who winds up getting the video out is an attorney because a murder happened. So the murder had to be discussed. So the attorney that the murder was discussed with found out about the tape said this is horrible he wound up sending it to marbury's family's attorney and he's the one that basically got it out to the internet which then gave us the opportunity as a planet as the world as a community to say oh my god this is terrible it's where you find out that he's got connections to the da's office connected judges now the heat's on have to recuse themselves you know um you have that whole situation the other policemen knew about it so there was more than one judge so now that's institutionalized racism. How do you think they were treating the black people in those communities if these guys just went vigilante hunting and killed this guy and they were totally covering up? So you couldn't argue with that, and that was already simmering. Um, and then you have the young lady who's in her house, Brianna Taylor. You hear a noise at the door. You get a gun. You're, you're defending your house, you and your boyfriend. Door starts to kick in. Your boyfriend fires. They shoot, shoot up the house. You're hit with eight bullets. Kill this young girl right in her own home, 23, in her own home. You know, EMS, volunteer. Oh, ooh, sorry. <laughs> we got the wrong house. Uh, in fact, the other house, it was like 10 miles away. Oh, we got the wrong house. Sorry about that. You know, you guys. But listen, your boyfriend's going to house. He's going to jail. Well, we, we know all these, That first of all, the s systematic racism exists. We know that. Let's yes. assume that, okay? Yes. Because you and I know that that is real. Yes. Okay, so we don't have to um, make that case. Right. Well, we have to, what I'd like to talk about for a couple of minutes is where do we go from here? What do we do? Okay. How do we live? Do we really want to go down the path? We really want equal justice. Yes. Social justice. Yes. We really do want that. Yes. I don't, I'm not thinking that we're seeing that on TV every night. Some no. of the stuff we're seeing on TV is just awful. Right. Um, has nothing to do with this, this movement. Yes. It's agreed. more trying agreed. to bring attention to something else, you yeah. know, or trying to do evil. Yes. Equal evil. Sure. Um, so we're, we're, how do we move forward and what do we do? Well, the reason I touched on the Brianna, because some people are more familiar, not so much, because he... Um, Amari establishes the established because white people had to see this. I see what you're saying. They got to see it. We know it. We feel it. You don't have to sell us, but they had to see it. When you have a protest or a demonstration, whatever that person is, you want to get the message to them that they need to believe you to change, right. to support or change or remove. And white America, Marbury, Marbury shocked them. And then you had Breonna Taylor, you know, no knock warrant, boom, black female dead now. Okay, so now it isn't just the black guys. They've been saying this. Then by the time you see George Floyd killed mercilessly on that ground, 
and you can hear the people begging for his life. You can hear him begging for it. Now you have a situation where you can't deny what happened. This man is dead, and white America's gone, oh, my God, they were right. That's the reason that even down in NASCAR, they're taking out a Confederate sign. They know that those people riding around ain't happy, but they're doing that because America hears it. My concern is, and I'm getting, answering your question now, yes. is that there's people going, we got to change this. we got to do this. we got to do this. It's young people. It's young people. Young people have to go out there and do this. Young people have to go out there. Right. But what are they asking for? If you don't know what you're asking for in any negotiation, right. how do you know you're getting what the answer is right. to what you need? They can give you as little. Well, let the police departments tell us. Well, let this one tell us. So for me, um, there's something that has not been discussed. We've talked about um, the immunity, qualified immunity, which basically says if a police officer kills someone, he literally, in the line of duty, as long as he can prove that he was doing what he was trained for, you really can't sue him. He doesn't really lose anything. So that's why he can kill someone, and in the end, when you sue him, he can wind up with his pension, he can wind up with all of these things or slap on the wrist or not at all because you got the jury who expects that he does the right thing. And that's why you have a circle that's going on. It's the only job that you can really have where it's difficult to get fired. I think what you're saying is that it's difficult to prove that he did it illegally. Yes. Immunity makes sense if you think about it from the point of view of he's doing it correctly. If Absolutely. he's doing his job correctly, why should he be sued? Absolutely. He shouldn't. Well, I think what you're saying is it's been used against or for cops who are doing it incorrectly. Absolutely. Doctors have medical malpractice. Right. You can sue them. They could lose. They could be barred. Attorneys can be disbarred. Right. It is almost impossible to get an officer off the books. They know that there's even bad cops. How many of them say, oh, a couple bad apples. Oh, we got to get them off. They've done a terrible job getting them off. Why? Because it's the structure. So if we're going to change this, we're going to have to fight the unions because police unions protect all of that. Ooh, good luck. You feel me? So, yeah. so that's it. That's no longer a black-white thing. How now it's a blue thing. Yeah, man. And so, and so how are, are we're going to have to stand up and deal with that because let's go back to that system. Mayors appoint the police chiefs. Police chiefs obviously are under the jurisdiction of the unions. The union contracts that are negotiated will have to start to have stipulations in them that say – if you violate something, and if you are convicted of a felony, there has to be reprimands for you. If you are found of a felony, you lose your pension. Now you got a whole nother discussion that the policeman now has skin in the game. Because they don't really have skin in the game. Now, I know, here's a crazy disclaimer. We don't mean all police. Of course we don't mean all police officers. You know, all Irishmen aren't drunks. You know, all Catholics aren't saints. We don't have to say it, but we have to say that disclaimer. They have no skin in the game. If you want to be someone and you have it in you to hurt someone, you can carry that on as a police officer. They have some ridiculously high uh, rates of domestic violence. And what do you think about the choosing of officers? How they pick or how they uh, recruit, hire police officers well that's the other end of it um i believe you have to help the good police officers that's my perspective um i'd like to see that in america meaning you have to back them up 
you know, quote, whistleblowers, quote, the people who are the good ones that we're always talking about that are the majority. Their hands are tied because they're stuck with a cop that they know is dirty or grimy. If they try to report the guy, he becomes a rat. It's just like being in a, in a mafia or in a gang. You know, he might be risking his life when you That's go out one day. That's heavy duty stuff, yeah. You know? So this is what I'm saying. How far down this rabbit hole do we want to go? We really, to correct it, we have to because those are what the issues are. If you can empower the other officers to be able to step up and to do something, then he's able to say, listen, man, I really can't handle this. I got a house to take care of. The whole idea of a, of a police officer, man, it's based upon they're infallible. That's what the basis is. That badge means something of such huge integrity. And we take it for granted, that's the guy with the badge. Right, but that's not the way the criminal justice system treats it. When he writes a police report, that's the finger of God against you, Frank. It's the mm -hmm. finger of God against me. Wow. Oh, he, arrested, he, he resisted arrest. Talking about, I was nowhere near you. It says here, you did. So when you go in there, there's penalties, go to resisting arrest. When you're stopped by the police, for black people, myself included, my brain is saying, let me minimize whatever risk this guy can put up. Because the whole idea is when a cop pulls you over and he wants to do you harm, he knows he pulled you over for the wrong thing. It's not that he wasn't trained not to. Of course he knows. But he has a problem. He's feeling he has to protect you. Actually, protect the community from you. Um, this whole idea of institutionalized racism is based upon black people have to be protected. White community, you guys got to do your job. You got to protect us from them. So that's why in their minds they're going, these guys would never do anything like that. They're not taking into account that there are people. But you had a black police chief in mm -hmm. Minneapolis. Yes. A black police chief. Yes. Who did not get fired. Yes. If that police chief was white, that police chief would be <laughs> gone. Okay, I see the other side of I it. Feel you. In other I words, feel you gotta I if you're gonna you. see no color, mm -hmm. see no color. Oh, I agree. I agree. You know, I agree. And and so the reason why I brought that up was right. because Minneapolis is system, systematic. Three guys watched yes. the other officer. Yes. So that's not just one Absolutely. bad apple. Yes. That's a system of racism. Yes, it is. And I and I have an answer for you for that. We have a chief right here. Awesome dude. There are people around him, you know, and I, I won't say who. He got, we know there's people, out, the unions protect those officers. So he's doing his job as best he can. That black um, police chief, wherever, uh, the female who was female. down in, uh, in Atlanta. In Atlanta, you yeah. Know, she's going like, okay, we're going to get this done. These guys go right out there and they shoot the guy in the back. She's like, Look, you know, forget it. This, I'm, I'm really trying to get this done. It's clear that you guys have a point to make in this police department, and I'm not going to be a part of it. You know, you want to kill people even though we're trying to settle things? That's not where you are. So I'm saying that you can have a black police officer, and there's a difference between the ones that are as bad as the white ones now because there's a lot that don't have respect for black and brown people. They'll take you down quicker, sometimes even in the white, because they get that blue in them. Wrong is wrong. Absolutely. To where they see that you have to protect, they ha you have to do his job to protect the people from us too. Right. And a more than one of them fall in that, so he got to go too. So I think when you have a system that penalizes people across the board, it makes sense, which is why I said the system deals with that like they're beyond reproach. When a policeman writes a report, it's, this, it's the assumption that he wouldn't put anything in there that's wrong. 
he wouldn't. Uh, That's what you meant by the finger of God, right? Yes. <laughs> that is kind of scary when you put it up like that. It is. Go to court. Go to court. What's the judge say? What's the police report say? Well, he says that it happened at 2 o'clock. Well, you know, you said it happened at 3. No, the officer says 2. He gets the benefit of the doubt. Said you resist the arrest there. Well, I got a nod over here, a nod over there. Okay, he said, well, that happened during the resistant arrest. But no, no, that happened when they put me in the car. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is, it's crazy. The, the, the prime example was the 75-year-old man that got hurt, pushed down in Buffalo. We saw the officer push him down. Boom. We saw people trying to help. You know, the officers wouldn't help. The, it took the uh, National Guard to help him. The, the police report to the news, hey, he tripped. That's their official response. NBC News is going and, like And if there wasn't a video of it, you would say the cop, of, of course, was right. This guy was probably just tripping. He's old. Absolutely. He fell. That's why his head busted open. Oh, my God, of course, if his head busted open, of course they would help him. And you saw the guy bleeding. You saw his hands shaking. Well, then, you know what? Then we're grateful for uh, video and for media. Because now everyone has media. Yes. Everyone has their own media company in their pocket. Yes. That's probably good. More transparency. It's changed everything within policing, um, you know, beyond social events. Because it's the only way to hold someone really accountable. Police departments are wonderful, man. Most of these guys, want it, they just want to go home to their kids. They want to take care of the communities, but you have other agendas, and that's what's missing from the system. So I'm saying specifically, when we have a police officer, there has to be accountability for the police report, for example. So when he writes the police report, since he is given so much weight and so much leverage in the, in the department, that's about his integrity. It's saying I, he would never write anything. So when you swear that, oh, you swear that you're going to do that, then if we find after two or three occasions you get a reprimand and say, wait a minute, you got three of them that's diametrically opposed to what we see in here at the video or to some other way to prove it, there yep. should be some way and there should be some type of penalty for that. See, now you're creating a track record that says this officer may have a problem. So let's check his record or at least see what's going on because you have to create the paper trail. Now, you know, even Chauvin, who killed Floyd, he had a ton of complaints, like 17. But the system didn't penalize him. Right. They just said, well, you got a lot of things going on there. and I think there was only like one, arre not arrest, but there was only one time when he one was prosecuted. One, re one reprimand. Yes, one. For 17. So this is saying that system... Where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> I mean, it was fire, and they called it something else. And so that's why I'm saying if we're going to reform the systems, there have to be things in place that will help a the policeman who's doing the right thing say, listen, man, I'm with you. I can't afford a reprimand. If this police report is wrong, then I'm going to go down with you. And I mean, uh, I can't afford to lose my pension. After two or three of those you get, and I'm just talking like a system. This don't exist right now. Um, you get three of them, you get a reprimand. You get, a you get suspended without pay. You have a history of doing that because it's easy enough to find out because right now you hear oh, so many lies about police reports, so it's absurd. It doesn't even make it to what you say. Every time, it was, a, it was a lie, it was a lie, it was a lie. No penalties. They could do something called an addendum in case they make a mistake like 30 days later. Oh, yeah, I need to end that. That's something totally different. 
So that's why, like, say within 10 days or within, within three days, they have to give a preliminary report. If there's something beyond that, and it better match pretty close to what it is, if it's diametrically opposed and it's proven, that should be a count in and of itself. After a period of time, you get suspended. You get suspended without pay. You get a review. If you are, once you are convicted of a crime, because now we're talking about before you get to the point where you can put them in there, you're at least helping to make a better environment to protect the community as well as, because now he's got to sit in that car and say, whoa, man, if I fill out this thing and somebody's recording something, I could lose my, some money. I could be suspended. I could even be fired over a period of time because that's a very, very serious offense, I found out, from a judge. But it's not really looked at, and it's something that's missing. So the other side is because it does become um, changing these things is what the unions are going to fight. Right now, banning the chokeholds, they're fighting about the chokeholds. Even though state of Connecticut, they banned it federally, they're fighting that. So and here in Connecticut, we've got a pretty Well, I guess system. it depends on who you talk to because I've heard people say that the chokehold is not uh, done correctly is a good tool. And then I've heard people say, obviously, because of what we've seen, it's, it's a tool for murder. Um, so which is it? Well, I think that it, it goes back again. If you want to do your job right, it is that. It's easy to abuse. You're trying it's to limit. It's easy to abuse. You're, you're trying to limit the option for abuse. If I got skin in the game, maybe I but, don't but, want to but, put that chokehold But if on. the cop's life is in danger and the chokehold is the best thing for that cop to protect himself, now he can't use it. I, don't you think that it's the user mm -hmm. of all these tools? Mm-hmm. That's really the, the problem, not the technique. The technique in, its, in, of, in of itself doesn't necessarily kill people. Right. But then again, that gets into the argument of the gun control, and it's not guns, it's the people who, you know. I don't know where we end with this thing. I just am so glad that you shared some really interesting comments that make us all think deeply about this. And uh, so... Uh, let's just end it on that on that note. What do we do with these circumstances that um, the people in blue mm -hmm. are saying, well, we need these tools, mm -hmm. but yet they're the ones who are murdering people in some cases. How, how do we rectify this situation? Well, it's back to the hard, really, talk. It's going to take political dynamics. The young people are pushing this. The protests are pushing this. But it's going to take doing exactly what we're talking about. Police unions, or you were in a battle, like with the cigarette companies back in the day, that huge lobby. Um, you know, you've got uh, the lobby of the gun lobby. It's it's like that, you know. And I think that the the context is that police are fallible. Right. Okay. If you put they're fallible in there, then you can have whatever argument you want, as long as you're looking at it like there, it's impossible, and they have the integrity, and they're beyond human because they would never falsify or do anything. When we see these things all the time, then it speaks to that because every profession has that. You know, I'm so glad that we've spoken because I think people need to hear um, folks talk about these issues. Someone who has studied them or at least understands them. Uh, because a lot of people don't, don't have access to this information that you've shared with us. And I think that's very helpful. Um, do you find that, uh, that people are hungry for this information? When I tell them about the police report, they freak out first. You know, it's like, cause, um, 
I, I try to look at the what's the solution? What caused that problem to begin with? How did that man get in the situation where he had to go to court? The first thing that happens is the confrontation with the policeman starts right there. You know, so if he has skin in the game and something to lose, if he does something wrong, then I believe hearts and minds of men, because that's what we're relying upon. Otherwise, let's say we had chokeholds, all that getting them in and getting them into the prison system is something else. Because, you know, you got the school to prison pipeline. We can take a teenager. You know, you can still jack him up and still get him in there. He's got no skin in the game. By having something that starts at the very beginning, something as simple as, and it makes sense, you know, to just say, if your police report is wrong, why would that not affect the credibility of what's thereafter? It's like a, a disconnect there. And when that is found that the police report is fallible or totally false, there isn't any, and at least not that I've heard of, Anything that says, well, officer, you now your integrity is in question here because you said that, you know, there was one guy, there's really two guys. Oh, well, the other guys just got the information. Oh, this is your recommend. Now we've got the cameras here. You know, we reviewed the cameras. This is very different from what you reported, officer. So that in and of itself, just starting out the gate can be a huge deterrent, even how long you keep the cameras on, you know, because you can have cameras when you turn them off. Okay, when you go to the bathroom. Other than that, so do you think we should have more conversation about these things? You think a roundtable or a discussion of these things should 1, be taking place? One thousand percent. I think that we need a discussion that puts things in perspective so that people have information they don't have. Um, I, I know that the, the, the statistic yesterday was ninety-one percent, according to ABC, want to see a change in how police are dealing with minorities and um, in, in such. You know, um, 71% of the crimes that happen to white people are other white people. Mm-hmm. It's not us mm-hmm. with that perception. So we need that because, and, and white America wants it too. And I'm talking about white America because they control the institutions. They control the money. They control the unions, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but that's not a good it. thing. We, as a community, yes. are supposed to control these things. The, it's our government. Yes. And that includes black, Hispanic, white, Absolutely. everybody. So uh, what you just said about whites controlling, I don't, I don't, th- I'm hoping that we get beyond that. That's, that's the most obvious change. Well, if you look at people like Serena Williams' husband stepping down saying, look, Reddit, yeah. I could have just put a black man in there. He says, no, that's symbolic. I wanted to put someone in that seat that actually gets that power and influence. That's totally different. Just his presence will change things and what he's supposed to do. And he's giving him the thumbs up to say, look, I'm still around. Just do what you got to do to make things better. Get NASCAR. Who would have ever thought NASCAR would lead the civil rights, man? NASCAR? What? Took out the Confederate flag? What? That would have been the last place. You would think it would be an NFL baseball. Hey, you know what? I'm going to leave it on that because there's hope. Oh, my God, yes. You just left us with hope. Yes. You know, if it could happen to NASCAR, it could happen here in Bridgeport. It could happen happen anywhere. Man, you're not lying there. All right, let's hope for the best. Frank, appreciate you much, man. I got a computer service business now, so that's what I'm doing when I'm not doing the other stuff because you got to eat, you know? Right, exactly, exactly. (laughs) What's the name of the computer service business? Uh, Custom Computer Services. 
Um, you know what? You guys, Instagram, Facebook, you can hit me up on there. Okay. And I got some businesses and private stuff, you know. All I, right. I take care of folks, man. All right, man. You're a great show, man. Thank you, uh, Elias, for hanging out with us. And thank you, for our listeners. I hope we've shared something with you that you find useful. And I hope you find that we were objective and honest. And, um, and that you'll tune in again. Thanks. Bridgeport Stories. Bye.